0: episode five of the principles of performance podcast and today is a very very special one for you and i michael uh my name is eric degatti along with mike perry my sidekick and uh it's a big one because we have a guy that has been uh for me professionally not only a huge hero and an uh uh, influence on, on my career but also an incredible mentor and blessed to say a friend um and if unless you've been under a rock for the last 25 years in our industry, I don't need much of an inter- introduction for this guy. Uh, whether it's what everything he's done for the fitness world, as well as as a physical therapist and the rehab side of things, um, from his books going back to athletic body and balance. Um, some of the early years I got introduced to his work up and through his book, Movement, and to his latest book, we're going to talk quite a bit about is the business of movement. But most people obviously associate uh, this guy with with cre- being one of the creators of the functional movement screen and functional movement systems. And and Mike, that's he- how you and I met is, is through FMS. And so um, it is a honor and a privilege to have Gray Cook with us today.
1: Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's uh, good to be here. Thank you for the introduction. And I'm glad to do anything I can for you guys because I've taught with you guys in, in live workshops, small sizes and big sizes. And the one thing I can say about you both is you've never dropped the ball. Uh, I've, I've, sometimes you didn't even know I was throwing it to you, but <laughs> somehow it didn't hit the ground. You never dropped the ball. And that we call that the no-look pass. That means we, we know the system. We, we don't have to work off a of script. And, and I
0: appreciate the, uh, both you guys. Well, well, thank you for that. And, and and the cool thing that that we can um, attribute to you is that, that as someone who is a former facility owner for 12 years uh, down here in New Jersey and, and Mike who has his own facility up in, in Massachusetts is you could walk into either one of our places and watch one of our sessions and they're going to be very uniquely different But they're based and rooted in a very sound systematic system that is based in everything we've kind of learned along the way from from you and from FMS. And so, um, you know, that's really comes to a more of a mindset and a thought process than it is being, hey, we know this movement screen thing, right, Mike?
2: Absolutely. I think, you know, it's one of those things where I honestly don't know if I could operate without it. And that's not saying uh, that, you know, I can't make my own decisions, but I've just, I've been using it for so long. And when I first learned about the system, I didn't know the, the intricacies of the system. I just knew how to run it. Right. I didn't know. I didn't really know how, how deep it went. And then once I started teaching, I realized, wow, there, there were a lot of things built in that I didn't even know were built in. And that was something that just continued to surprise me along my journey. I was like, wow, they, every time I thought that I thought of something new, it had already been thought about and you guys had already checked that box. So, you know, for me, it really does allow our gym to make better decisions when it comes to program design, exercise selection, teaching the staff, having a common language. So um, I, I can honestly say that, you know, from being at the, you know, the 2008 certification at the Reggie Lewis center with, with, with gray and Mike Boyle, Uh, up until, you know, teaching a few months ago, uh, down at a private course. I mean, it's, it's something that I have uh, studied, I've learned a ton. And um, it's, it's absolutely changed my career for good. And, uh, you know, I never thought that I'd be in an opportunity to, you know, teach this in front of people. But man, it's, it it really changed my career and and put me on a path to surround myself with amazing people uh, like you too, with, you know, Brett Jones, Diane, and just the crew. So it really is uh, a key part of, you know, my quote unquote success in in the industry for sure.
1: It's just, it's there. I think both of you guys are logical coaches. You systematically bring forward the logistics and, you know, People have asked me a thousand times if you could go back and change the movement screen, would you? And I'm like, if we had to, we could create other movement screens. But as you said, I think the, the way we came at it, we surrounded the problem. One of these movement modalities is going to catch it and is going to amplify your problem probably more so than the other. And the minute it does that, it amplifies something, but we there's some stuff baked in, and I don't even know how I did it. I know my, my brother and my dad are better mechanics than me, and we walk up to a car that's not running, and I like to hear them systematize why it's not running. It's just efficient thinking, saves your hands, saves the tools, saves a lot of time. So you come at the movement screen and say, okay, we're pretty good at least we think on the medical end, we're pretty good on the fitness end, but how about this bridge? Because doc said, you're ready to go. Coach knows you're not. Who's, who's, what happened between those two silos where everything gets lost? And it was this vetting of, are you walking around with authentic movement or less than that? And there's no stigmatism to it. I'm not walking around with authentic movement right now. Some of the, some of the things have been taken away. But when you come at screening, it's better to ask a binary questions. It's better to have intentional redundancy. And it's better to use numbers instead of words because people don't lie with numbers as often as they do with words. So when you see somebody do a deep squat with the bar overhead, the only question is right now, is it a three? Yes or no? Okay. You don't have to do anything else. And there are so many people that instead of just, committing to it, and then thinking deeper, like, like you said you did, they're like, oh, yeah, we get that. Or our exercise covers that. Or they're so quick to the remedy that they're not laying the baseline. And if you don't lay the baseline, you don't get a feedback loop. And if you don't got a feedback loop, you think you won every game you play. And I know for a fact I didn't. I just wanted to know why I lost at that time. And so that, that
0: feedback loop was very, very important to me. So... Now, is, is us trying to be ambassadors for the system and, and, and move it forward, um, where do you see from your inception of, of this whole thing where it's been misinterpreted, where it's been misapplied, where it's not, well, that's not what my vision was for it?
1: Um, two, two unique uh, <clears throat> situations. When the movement screen first came out, um, I think most physical therapist thought they were covering movement patterns as a whole. But when you look at what PTs get paid for, it's, it's strength test and range of motion test and how much you can change those. And if I change your ankle range of motion, but don't change your fall risk or your gait, then I still get paid for that because I reported a 20 degree improvement in the dorsiflexion mobility that was lacking when you came across my door. Now, I'm not saying people drop that ball, but without having a functional measuring stick, we can't reconcile that the impairment you measured with your goniometer is the actual thing or only thing that was causing that that gait problem. So I'm like, we don't have a functional standard. My movement screen, was not made to enhance or illuminate the physical therapy exam. I was doing a completely different exam that looked a lot like the functional exam we do right now called the SFMA. A little bit different test, but it's giving me, once again, that same surrounding of the problem. And if it's like, if I truly changed your impairment, it's either expressed by a functional improvement or it's not. And if I gave you the potential to move better and you still don't, then I should be working on movement as a whole, not in isolation. A lot of times I get somebody that got their finger almost cut off and put back on. And for a while, we're just working on isolation. We're just working on those three knuckles, those bends, those tendons, everything like that. But at some point, if you can't show me a fist, if you can't wave bye-bye, and if you can't hold a, you know, few necessary things in your life, I've done nothing but range of motion. So we didn't have a functional standard. And to give everybody the olive branch who came before us, I don't think we so much needed one in the past. Usually you get people get that impairment and people get right back to an active life. People aren't going back to active lives now. People are going back to very myopic pursuits of physical expression and a lot of sitting and watching other people do shit. That's just that's just the way it is. So. That, that functional standard got adopted by chiropractors almost as their intake exam. FMS is way too hard to do when you're in pain. And then all of a sudden, early in my career, I got backlash because people thought I was teaching orthopedic examination to non-clinicians. And I'm like, that's like an optometrist being intimidated that somebody's got an eye chart at the DMV. None of them are doctors, and they still need to know if you can see or not because they're issuing a license. So the very first attempt at the movement screen, because it had the word functional in there, everybody who wanted to embrace a more functional approach adopted it, but they didn't understand it was an adjustable scale. You don't need to do a push-up today in front of me if you got low back pain. And I'll decide what movements I do need to see if you're not in pain and one of these causes pain, then if you didn't know that, I'm glad we, we now do. But it was almost like. Instead of instead of just saying, oh, wow, this person is far less functional than I thought, I would say that the majority of people showed up to our first workshops uh, And if we had said we can dispense with the screen and just show you all our favorite correctives, they'd have just taken that. Because I think a lot of us uh, early in our career got into the service profession of selling activity and exercise packages. And so you can't sell a screen, but you can sell an exercise. Now, there's no there's no price for a screen when we first introduced that. There's no intake example. It's, I can charge you for the reps. I can't charge you for the appraisal, you know, and, and so I think a lot of people were very, very concerned with these programs that rendered a functional result without ever baselining function first. Um, I have no doubt in my mind, uh, Mike Boyle and Martin Verstegen in the day, uh, Gary Gray, too, were probably creating more functional environments for people to train in than everybody else. But it's because they were savants, not because they were running the data. They, they, they didn't have to. They just saw what needed to be worked on. You can't become Mike Boyle in, in, a, in a weekend workshop. I know a lot of people try and they got got his name on their uh, certificate, but they they ain't Mike because they're not making the same decisions that he would make. And so what I wanted to do, mostly in my own backyard, is get this really efficient communication with my staff. I don't I won't debate how you're going to fix a functional movement problem because we got a screen. I'll know if you fixed it or not. And if it didn't change, then I can get in your shit. And if it did change, then I can say, hmm, maybe I should adopt that because that was about four sessions quicker that I could turn it. But it's like everybody wants to debate the outcome without the objectivity that would easily remove the debate. So a lot of people try to use it as a unnecessary physical exam. We got a much better physical exam. It influences what you would do on a capacity test, but it doesn't predict capacity at all. Um, I wrote a statement the other day about the movement screen. My hypothesis in the beginning was that humans should have unique ability to hold on to these fundamental movement patterns. They should be effortless, pain-free, and mostly symmetrical. And when I'm talking about the patterns, I'm talking about everything that you did before walking. Because as long as you're walking, you shouldn't lose those pillars of walking. We know you can and can keep walking and that's all, that's all great. But we know some people can make it all the way home drunk driving too. It's just not a good thing to keep repeating. So that was my central premise is if, if every human that's walking today went through these developmental patterns, when is it okay to lose them? Or is it okay to lose them? And if it's not okay to lose them, then how should we move from there? So
2: interesting. So Gray, I have a question for you. So you know, obviously, you have a physical therapy background. You've got your doctorate in that. Was it tough to differentiate the the PT mind versus the the basic sort of mind of just looking at global movement patterns? Because in general, you know, PTs tend to follow the local, regional, and then global movement sort of map and then the fms is actually the same thing in reverse where we start with global movements we go to regional and go to local was did you flip that on purpose or is that something that happened organically how did that idea come about because that's something that when i explained it in that sort of language to pt's they're like yeah that actually makes a ton of sense was that on purpose or did that happen organically
1: um, that's a number one that's a great observation even in the top tier of the sfma we do Go global first but the burden isn't heavy meaning standing on one foot is way less hard than a hurdle step right and standing rotation is a much more subtle weight shift than a rotary stability test there's no need for a lunge and a push-up in my exam room those are very high stress positions and i may drop those in rehab to check everything but um Yes, I found that even PTs were going too local too quick. Uh, ATCs saw the swollen ankle and never went above it or below it. Um, PTs saw the low back and forgot the research that said a high percentage of people with low back pain also have hip stiffness or asymmetry um, or balance problems. So I honestly think that PTs, um, because of the way they're paid, are doing all these little measures. And that's no different than the trainer who spent a lot more time reading bodybuilding magazines than really coaching up 35 kids and trying to make a interesting half hour come out with some pretty good performance outcomes. So I think at the time, the word function was getting vogue. I think we were all sick of an isolation isolation approach that wasn't yielding the results that we thought we were going to get when we were in school. And it was simply because everybody wanted to talk about the muscle map and the local uh, strategy instead of saying, what kind of global change did that make? It's okay to go down the rabbit hole and isolate. But if you come back out and can't prove to me, other than that test, you changed something, I'm wondering, eh, that's a party trick. That didn't really... And you know, put another movement in my quiver, so to speak. Um, so I, I think both PTs and and the coaching and training world were making very many assumptions about what was yielding function than what function actually was. Um, I've even I've even uh, you know spent some time doing some stuff uh, early early days of the movement screen talking to the NBA guys. And they're like, do we really need to do the deep squat? Because our guys don't deep squat anytime in their sport. And I'm like, oh, you think I'm trying to cover the positions of your sport? No, I'm trying to cover the positions of humanity and see how much of humanity this guy gets to take over to the NBA. So squat for me is not about how good you do it. It's If you can't, I already know what I'm looking at. I need to see
0: some ankle stuff, core stability stuff, weight shift stuff. So. Now, in terms of your influences on that kind of mindset, I know that, you know, Shirley Sarman and people like that had a, had a big impact and we're all kind of standing on the shoulders of the, those who came before us. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the people that you came across that got you out of the dogmatic kind of thinking that most most of us get trapped in in, in traditional education systems.
1: I, I'm going to give you guys a, a quick little history lesson. Um, I was gung-ho sports medicine coming right out of my undergrad knew I wanted to go to PT school um, couldn't get in anywhere and I I, I had my my GPA and I um, I had a double major and a minor in psych and I had a 375 GPA and PT school um, in uh, the late 80s that's the date uh, had a 16% acceptance rate medical school had a 22% acceptance rate of those qualified my parents said If you're going through all this trouble, why don't you just be a doctor? And I'm like, because I don't want to make a pharmaceutical company any richer than they already are. They're already richer than God. So let's not uh, do that. Um, I got accepted at University of Miami, the only school that accepted me that year, right right after graduation, as an alternate. And then a smarter person probably went to a bigger school, and uh, a slot opened up. And I went down to Miami and uh, had to get my study habits right but I was blown away by all my neuro classes, and, and first one I'm going to bring up is uh, a professor, Rose Ryan. She, she was on me about PNF, the, the neurodevelopmental progression. And then I went over to orthopedics and we weren't using any of those global patterns. We were just going straight in on the ankle. And the global pattern was always assumed in orthopedics. And then I had this little first epiphany why is it then we're working in the musculoskeletal system, strength conditioning, orthopedics, whatever, we assume the neurological system is optimized because now we're not doing that anymore. We, don't, we never assume the neurological system is optimized. It's burdened by dehydration, poor sleep, poor nutrition choices, poor relationships and emotion, poor, poor time management. It's the, the, the system is burdened by all that. And so we can easily wreck a movement pattern even though you don't have an orthopedic problem. So, I, I didn't see the synergy. And if we're going to look at humans with neurological problems in a global perspective, why can't we start global with orthopedics? We should see far less problems, except for the way the problem is being expressed. I got out of PT school and uh, I took some uh, money, a sign on bonus, and it threw me out into the Midwest. I'm an East Coast guy and I'm a redneck. So you throw me in the Midwest, I just don't know what to do, I'm, right? I knew Larry Bird was from there. That was about it. I didn't know anything else about the Midwest, but I, I was working off a sign-on bonus and I got stuck in a hospital situation. I didn't get what I was promised. Uh, they were trying to open a sports medicine clinic. But while I was out there, a couple of my patients, difficult patients, um, I had I'd always heard about this guy, Paul Hughes. And uh, he was one town away. And I had this old farmer, complicated back injury. And uh, I wanted to help this guy. I mean, he had to be in a combine. It wasn't, (laughs) I mean, he had, he was going to lose a lot of money and time. Anyway, uh, my director, who knew I was going to be gone at 364 and a half days, because that was my commitment, said, why don't you accompany your patient over to see Paul Hughes? I'll book the appointment. He mentored me. He's what you need right now and she gave me the day off. So I took my patient over there and this short little guy with glasses and a mustache with the white coat and everything um, proceeded to run this thing like a drill instructor and turn to the right, turn to the left. He did this systematic evaluation. Every one of his exam rooms was the same. Each one of his rooms had its own hot pack machine, sink and stuff like that. He had a lot of assist and help. But he went through probably the most thorough exam that I'd seen. And I think PTs at that time were heavily influenced in where you point. You point to your shoulder, that's where they start the exam. You know, you point to your low back, that's where they start the exam. That's not what Paul did. He started the exam with the same movement patterns, whether you had a broken jaw or a broken toe. He wanted to see how you move. He already knew what your problem was, or at least your complaint. I was intrigued, and I realized that Paul Hughes was a physical therapist, but he was also a manual therapist. I didn't know what that was. Well, he could do stuff chiropractors could do. He could do stuff osteopaths could do. He could manipulate, cavitate a joint. He could get it to pop. He could do stuff with tissue. He would do miraculous stuff, just like people have seen me do a toe touch progression on stage. Person hadn't touched their toes in 10 years. Doom doom doom. Now they can't. I see a bad toe touch as a movement pattern, not as a tight posterior chain or a fascia line that needs eight months of laser to change. And some movement patterns change, some don't. But the command he had of the room, of the organized, systematized deduction, of the explanation, which his explanation to me could take four days of what he did. His explanation to the patient was very simple. Of all these things, I surrounded the problem. It got me down to this. I'm going to work on this. We're going to open it back up and see how that changes that. Blew me away. It was the tightest logic bomb I'd ever seen in my life in musculoskeletal. It wasn't maybe. It wasn't a narrative. It wasn't a long explanation and what the research shows. It was, this is what I think, and we'll find out if I'm right in a minute. And I'm like, ooh, that's badass. That, that sniper just called his target, and he put two through the same hole. That's the coolest thing I ever saw. But I'm a month from finishing up my stint at uh, Danville Regional Medical Center um, in Danville, Illinois, from Danville, Virginia. Who, who knew how that would turn out? And uh, I go back. I'm blown away. I'm like, I'll never reach that. And a week later – Paul calls my director and says, "Is great uh, heading back east. Or you think you can keep him out here a little while longer?" She goes, "Well, I can't keep him, but you probably could." And uh, he offered me a job, but he said everybody that works here has to take an aptitude test first. Now you can't do that these days. You can't even ask people any personal. But that's <laughs> like, oh, so I got to have an aptitude test to see if I'm smart enough to work here. Yeah. And he was doing everything he could to rattle my cage. But it was three years of boot camp. I mean, I would process cases all day. I could hit 17 home runs and get thrown out at first, and that's what we're going to talk about, right? The one I dropped, the one I missed, why'd you do it that way? And we got into these patient-centric conversations, but he would always take it back to this philosophical place, structure versus function. Cook, you're thinking too much structure, think function. So he'd always push me out of my comfort zone. And then three years in, he just comes to me one day. And he's like, all right, that's it. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I know you don't want to be in the Midwest the rest of your life. And I got nothing left to teach you. Go do this thing. And uh, i made a few connections. I realized Paul sort of patted me on the head, uh, came back east to a place in North Carolina and became the director of two clinics. And because of my credentials, I had a lot of manual therapy credentials. I had uh, sports medicine, strength conditioning credentials. I had board certified in orthopedics. So I was qualified to be a director, but I was one of the younger therapists there. Now I'm buddy heads with all these old therapists that are like, well, we do it this way. And so I had to you know, put on a little bit of humility and say, well, can I try something? And then I had to, I had to prove myself every day Maybe we should do it this way, right? Aw oh, shucks, maybe we should do it this way. It's like the Andy Griffith show. Andy's got to make it Barney's idea or it ain't going to happen. Um, but it, it taught me a little bit of humility because I came out of the Midwest thinking I was maverick. I was ready to fly top, top guns up anybody's tailpipe. Don't challenge me. But I had to let myself be challenged because what did Paul do in his explanation to the patient? It was kind. It was concise. It was compressed. And it worked. of the time or better. If I could manage my humility around these new staff, maybe I could get them, them facing in that direction. So Rose Ryan gave me the, the neuro ortho um, come together. And then Paul took me to the next level in orthopedics. After that, all I had to do was work with a lot of strength coaches so I could learn to speak, speak strength coach, work with a lot of triathletes so I could learn to speak triathlete, but it's still neuro and well done, ortho at the bottom of all those things.
0: Very cool. So I, I think a lot of the elegance that lies within the the, F, the functional movement system is just that, is the systems. And, and, and to kind of take your point from before, uh, something that I actually... Uh, had in in my presentation at one of the summits was talking about the difference of of two different professionals that are out there there's there's systems managers, and there's wizards, There's wizards like we know, you know, uh, Bernard, who works with us, who, who literally can put his hand on your shoulder and your leg raise gets better, right? And, and, yep. and he's he's a wizard, right? And so I'm smart enough to know that I'm not smart enough to, to reach that level, but I'm really good at systems. And, if, and I can just answer a lot of yes and no questions as I'm evaluating someone or putting some through an assessment. And so that then translates into how you go about your day. And that's kind of what the, the new book, the, the business of movement kind of talks about. And, and uh, you know, I'm honored to be a small sliver of that and, and, and the work that you've done on that and kind of showing how people can then translate that professionally. Um, And, and so if you want to talk a little bit about, you know, how that system then translates, because Mike and I, we get the question at the end of every course, oh, well, how's this going to make me any more money? right how do I, how much do i charge for the screen well it's, that's that's a very simplistic way of looking at it this is going to transform the way you go about kind of your your day and your your profession
1: um I, number one i think that's good and and i'm i'm preparing myself for this cuz i'm going to be you know talking about the book and i'm going to be talking about uh um you guys obviously we we hit you up for quite a few things and mike we got your non-negotiables right there on uh Let's see. Page 101. And and those non-negotiables are are nice to unpack, too, because it's going to be hard for somebody to slide through with one of those and really have an excuse for it. Um, And, you know, Eric, the way you were talking about bringing it specifically to a, a coaching or training environment, you say a lot of things that I don't say. You phrase it different than I phrase it, but you, you, you fit it to the environment. You wouldn't have survived <laughs> working in the NFL if you didn't frame it to that situation because every team I go into, I wind up talking about the same thing, but I never get to start that way. We got to talk about what they want to talk about and get it back to this um, movement piece. But to your question, how's this going to make me more money? Well, first question to the person at that are you an expert? And I don't care what they say, are you an expert? If they say yes, then I say, then how come you got a problem with your income? And if they say no, I'm like, then I would challenge you to become more of an expert. I think the money will follow that. Uh, Now there, there are a lot of experts that make poor financial decisions. But if you've got a wife and an accountant or a a spouse and an accountant, you're not going to make that many poor decisions unless you just don't read people well. But I've been studying the art of expertise, and and there's a lot of information out there on the Internet. But there's four principles that come around every time, and they speak very much to, to what we collaborate and try to put in this book. Number one, make sure you're working in a valid environment, all right? How many times does the parent have a poor appraisal of the athleticism of the kid that you're working with?
2: All the time. Uh, every time.
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they, people either overshoot or undershoot. Movement is a very valid environment. Guys like Phil Plisky and Kyle Kiesel have ensured that we don't say things we can't back up. We have a reliable tool. You know, when I came out of PT school, goniometry, just putting a protractor on somebody's ankle was about 85% reliable among people with eight or more years of training in how to do that shit. So I wasn't really enamored by the reliability. We had anything. Our reliability in the FMS is far above what goniometry was at the same time simply by making the scoring criteria that way. I knew the error wasn't in the fact that movement was eroding in front of my eyes. The error was Everybody has their own tolerances for what they will accept, and that's unacceptable. When you're, when you're at a kettlebell event, if, if Pavel says you got a bad swing, you got a bad swing. <laughs> and if one of his instructors doesn't agree with that, they've got to change their opinion. <laughs> so <laughs> it's always nice to have, right? There's always a default. So starting, you got to have a valid environment. The movement screen, the Y balance test, Many of the other tests we do have been time-tested. They're available in the research. When done right, they are very reliable and very valid. Number two, got to have a lot of reps. You're not an expert on Monday morning if the first movement screen you ever saw was on Saturday before that. But what do Lee and I say at the end of every course? And what do you guys say at the end of every course? Go get your reps. Go get your reps. Go get your reps. Three, timely feedback it timely feedback, like, all right, this person has a uh, active straight leg raise problem and a toe touch problem. What are you going to do to change both those things? All right, well, you got five minutes. I know what I do in five minutes. I got a feeling I know what you guys would do mostly in five minutes. I have no idea what they're doing in five minutes, but in five minutes, I'm 80-20 success. And so the timely feedback doesn't mean a thing until you've gotten your reps and you're a valid environment. Uh, a non-valid environment is like going to Vegas thinking you're a good gambler, right? That's not a valid environment. The roulette wheel is going to do what it does. Um, the last one is deliberate practice. Call your shot, hit your shot, or own your mistake. And that brings me back to a, a little game that I play with a lot, of, a lot of nieces and nephews and friends and kids that visit our house. I was taught how to do movement target marksmanship. Uh, A guy named Chief AJ had me at one of his rifle camps. We get these Red Rider BB guns. We put silver BBs in it, not gold BBs. We make consistent throwing targets. We make them out of water bottles. We shoot a little goop in the bottom so they all weigh the same. You throw those things up and you don't use the sights. Both eyes open, you just shoulder the BB gun and hit it. Now, I'll do a demonstration and, and most days, without a warm-up, I'm better than 50%. Give me two rounds. I'm about 80%, 90% hitting every thrown target with a BB. Um, I'm not throwing them out that far, 15, 20 feet. But um, when I hand the BB gun off, people just start, they, they run through 10 bottles, didn't hit anything. And then I say, call your misses. We know you missed every time, but I don't know where you missed. See, you're just thinking I missed. You don't know left, right, over, under. And since it's a silver BB and it's going less than 300 feet per second, you can see it. And so the minute I have the young quarterback, the young pitcher call his misses, the next round, we start getting some hits. They're not impressive, but it went from impossible to possible to better consistency to damn good. But you don't get there without calling your misses. And, and we're in a environment right now that when I make people call their misses, they think I'm shaming them. They just want their participation trophy and their pizza supper. And I'm like, Oh, I thought you came here for, for skill acquisition and expertise, call your misses. I got to call every miss I do, even if I call it silently in my head and then reconfigure and that's deliberate practice in a nutshell. Professional golfers don't go out and hit a bucket of balls. They go out and hit a bucket of balls to a hula hoop 100 yards away. And they don't consider anything success that ain't inside that hula hoop. So, valid environment. Make sure you're checking stuff that has been vetted, proven, reliable, and actionable. Get your reps because the first few things you do, you're going to be the mistake, not the system. Timely feedback is what the system is going to give you, and it's going to mentor you to your expertise, especially if you apply deliberate practice and those things you truly want to get better at. You just don't want to compliment on, right? We all want to be complimented. But that's the first thing I, I say, Eric, is is I want to make you more money because you're an expert. I don't want to make you more money because you're promising shit you can't deliver. I, I, I actually want you to stay poor until you are delivering what you promise, and then I want you to be rich. Otherwise. What do, what do we call that? So I do know that the quick flip, but let's be honest. Warren Buffett writes a book you, book. you set it down tomorrow. You don't become the best trader in the world. But hopefully you understand what got him there. And so, you know, I do know there's a monetary ta- tag attached to everything we do. But once you're an expert, you set the value of your service and people pay it. So, you know, the book is literally about expertise in the movement domain. How to create an environment where you can be a leader, but also realize that if you don't get your referral uh, conduits up, um, every time you open a referral door going out of your facility, you acknowledge another expert. They acknowledge your expertise simply by the fact that you recognize them, (laughs) right? So it's, you know, I wouldn't say it's as simple as networking and I wouldn't say it's as simple as, you know, staff development. It's literally make yourself better and then see how many people want to be on your team uh, is what that's about.
0: So uh, I'll kind of shift direct directions a little bit here, but, but playing on that is, is the concept of movement versus exercise. Um, and from a business standpoint, there's a lot more people that, that need to move, which basically is the entire human culture versus people who exercise a very small percentage of the culture actually exercises, but everybody needs to move. And, and this concept, you know, is, is really kind of the elegance of Katie Bowman's work of, of really looking at, you know, the difference between those two things. And, you know, the, the, the thought that kind of hit my head the the other day was like, you could go the rest of your life without an exercise and still be insanely successful in, in any endeavor. Like if you said, you are never allowed to deadlift again, you could still live a really long, prosperous, you know, life. But if you said you can't touch your toes anymore, that's a different story. And so from the position of, of, Hey, where, where am I going to get the biggest uh, net to cast is like, everybody needs to move. Uh, And I think we don't make that distinction very well. And even in the, the misconception, going back to early on the misconception of the FMS is that we do a screen so we can figure out what corrective exercises to give you. No, I, the, the screen doesn't as much tell me what, to, what exercise to do. It more tells me what not to do.
1: No, you're, you're, you're spot on. And I'm glad you mentioned Katie because when we had her on the podcast, even though her and I had talked a few times before the podcast, uh, I would encourage you guys to go back and listen to that. First 20 minutes are pretty awkward. And then all of a sudden I realized she works with a lot of people who've been burned by exercise. She works with a lot of people who want to be active. They want to be outdoors. They want to roll on the ground with their kids. They want permission to be adults at play in nature. And she's got both the biological uh, and biomechanical background to talk about that. But I honestly think that a lot of people who she winds up teaching directly, like when she runs a camp or something like that, have probably been let down by the gym atmosphere or by the sterileness of rehabilitation. And so talking to the movement screen guy, I'm just one of those assholes assigning another number to stigmatize how unfit you are. No, that's, I, I, I sort of saw that coming around in our interview and I was like, no, Katie, if anything, I would love for the movement screen to validate what you've done. I, I wish we could get a movement screen on somebody without taking 10 minutes of their life before and after they've been with you for a week. Because I think I could scientifically, not anecdotally, not subjectively, freaking objectively demonstrate that the best, most uh, adaptable week of their life they spent with you. But I can't prove that if we don't set a baseline up front. So I don't care how you get your movement back. Exercise is one, and and I'm glad you brought that up because as we get into the other ways that we can actually pre-screen you, that word is coming out right now because a pre-screen is one of those things just like we would do that would say, you know, between my aura ring and my relationship with you, I got a lot of things wrong with me, but I'm only pulling four hours sleep a night. Sleep wins. (laughs) I, I really can't get my growth hormone uh managed my cortisol managed i can't rest and regenerate and because i honestly think that for the first part of my career i thought i was a purveyor of stress your your system needs to be jump-started therefore i need to dispense activity i assume your rest regeneration nutrition relationships are great your physical perspective and images are great. And so all I do is add appropriate stress globally or locally, and then you'll bounce back off your unbelievably recovery pillow. Biggest problem I see with movement right now is the fact that people are under recovered. We could say you're overstressed or under recovered, but Lee and I were down uh, messing around with the 82nd airborne. And I tried to figure out, all right, what's a cook is I could put on this for all these hard chargers and the people that are in charge of training, I think 60 people within coaching, rehabilitation, counseling, and nutrition were in charge of Uh, 5,000. think you had a bad day. That's, that's a big, bad day. And I said, the central question is, is their movement broken or are they breaking their movement? Because if your movement's broken, us three aren't scared of that. You got a leg raise problem, stiff ankle, T-spine restriction. You got a little neck problem, whatever. We're not scared of movement problems if movement's the problem. But if you're sleep-deprived, dehydrated, breathing at a very inefficient level, um, and don't have good nutritional perspectives, your correctives ain't going to hold. There's not enough soil there to grow the seed of a new movement stressor. So – what we we know, and so one of the people in the audience said, how, how do you answer that question? I'm like, Listen, if your guys are reaching for two Red Bulls to get past three o'clock, I can promise you they're under recovered. Doesn't matter what stress you throw at them a- until they can find energy without the Red Bull. It doesn't mean Red Bull's bad, um, but it just means that if you see people strategically trying to boost energy from unauthentic sources, it's just like getting movement from unnatural sources. I can, you know, I can do a lot of these things, you know, and and I see so many tangents in our in our market with blood flow restriction and everything. It's still a local approach to a global problem. You know, if you've got a circulatory problem, you've got one from head to toe, not just in your bicep. Um, So um, I know all these things seem to work, but they they also disappear real quick after they run through their, you know, their their parade. So I do think that if we had a movement perspective, we could talk about stress and recovery. And that stress doesn't always have to be a package of exercise. We got a barn going up at my cabin. That means I was the guy that gets to work on the burn piles. So I can cut my logs short and fling them on, or I can cut them long and do log flips. Uh, I think I did 300 deadlifts yesterday. They weren't that heavy, but I had to get low. (laughs) You know, it, it, to your point, toe touch is more important than a deadlift. Deadlift is just yet another example of what I call healthy and organized stress to maintain that. But there are so many other things you could do, too.
0: And then uh, the the impression also is just this um, ability to sift through the soup of risk factors, right? Because everybody has at least one uh, it's a matter of how do I not compound that one and, and make it worse with others? Um, so if I have someone that can't touch their toes, I'm making it worse by adding a deadlift. If I have someone that now doesn't sleep and can't touch their toes and has poor nutrition and is stressed out, well, then the last thing they need is a, is a deadlift. And so it's being able to kind of gauge that and have some type of, of barometer to see where do I even start with this person? And deadlift is maybe the last place. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I agree with that.
1: Um, However, um, most people, when you ask them to pick their favorite lifts, they pick their personal favorite lifts, not the ones they wish they could deliver to almost every client. And I know you guys got go. If if you're going to put exercise on somebody, you're going to go for something like a deadlift or a Turkish getup or maybe a chop and lift or a single leg deadlift just because there's very little wiggle room if you're dysfunctional doing these. They, they just scream. I mean, you uh, uh, you didn't get mentioned in the book chapter that Tim Ferriss interviewed me for in The 4-Hour Body. You were the guy that validated his movement screen when he came back to the States because the whole time he and I were talking on the phone, he's in South Africa. I gave him Turkish get-up, single leg deadlift, chops and lifts, and I made him learn deadlift before. But I'm like, he said, make me functional without screening me. And I'm like, you're going to have a much harder time but you're going to have to figure out how to do all these moves, and you know have you've heard the term? It's the way that makes the warrior. If you can squeeze your body through all these moves with a scaled approach, you'll come out the other end and you'll post very nice functional scores. He he calls you up, uh, gets screened. I think he posted an 18. He. I don't think it's had an 18 since then because Tim's put himself into a lot of different things. He's got big and strong. He's done deadlifts. He tried a parkour thing. Uh, He called me about that, but um, no, that I gave him those core moves um, just like the deadlift. So we're not bashing exercise, but um, sometimes I think, especially in the environment we're at right now, exercise can cause just as many injuries as um, competition play because let's let's be honest that's that's what exercise becomes someday the sport of exercise right so i think as, as long as we're using exercise correctly it's nice to have a few of those moves in and uh i just tell people play with it practice it to a standard and then train it for variability and most people don't spend long enough playing with it You know, just just make the bar light and go for form and video it and send it to somebody who deadlifts better than you and let them coach you up before you got a lot of weight on the bar. So exercise isn't going away, but I honestly think packaging activity and just walking more. I I think most people who have multiple risk factors could still double, maybe triple their walking with appropriate surfaces and footwear. And not have an orthopedic injury. I wouldn't say that about anything else, any other type of exercise, because I don't know who's prescribing
0: it and who's running it. So you're saying there's a skill for strength and things like that? It's almost like they should name a place like that. They should name a gym.
2: I'm just
1: throwing. They should name a place like I I, I need a (laughs) T-shirt
0: that says that. I
1: think I got a hoodie that says that, but I don't
0: think I have a T-shirt. I think it's the
2: wrong. I think it's the wrong size hoodie that I think I got to get you another one, but. um my older no. daughter stole it. That's what happened. Jeez. That's fine. We'll, we'll get, we'll get you another one. Um, so, Hey, I have a question for you, Greg, because this sort of got me thinking, um, you mentioned the get up, and you know, I've, I've dug deep into the getup and I know you, you and Brett obviously have, but I think when it comes to movements like the getup, there's two things that people need to truly understand is one, you know, just getting up off the ground is a movement pattern. And there are some people that, uh, you know, they mechanically, for whatever reason, they literally don't have the function, quote unquote function to get up and off the ground. Or they do, but they've never been taught how to do it efficiently. And I think our job as coaches is to determine where they are currently at. And I think a lot of people, um, they, they, they understand that they have movement restrictions, but they don't understand why. And that's what we do. That's our job is to identify those things. But I think there are other people out there that, They just, they've never been taught how to move, but they still have authentic movement. And I think part of what we should, we need to be doing as strength and conditioning coaches and, 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 uh, you know, fitness professionals is learning the difference between the two, because if someone has clean movement and they can't do something, it's probably because of a technical based issue. They can't do it. And then vice versa, you know, if they can't get into certain positions uh, like a deep squat, for example, if they can't get into those positions to begin with, well, now they're trying to do something and they don't have any buffer zone to move. And one of the things that we talk about in our courses uh, with, the, with the PPD stuff is just giving people more lanes so they're not always redlining up against their own movement. And I think one thing people don't understand is when you're exercising, sometimes you're battling your own restrictions. And that's one of the main reasons why you're not getting more and more functional, but also one of the reasons why you're not getting the results because you're literally trying to you know, you know, continue to run into a door that's just closed. And so many people think, well, if I just run into the door harder, eventually it's gonna pop open. But so many people don't understand that authentic movement is just, it gives you more options and then you can lay technique over that. And that's when the magic happens. And, and I think
1: when, when people do experience moderate difficulty in the getup, not the, the fact that they can't get in a position, but what we observe is they either can't get in the position or their transitions look really sloppy. Would, mm-hmm. would that be a good way to put most people? You either look pretty damn good and symmetrical or you have transition problems, but the positions aren't unavailable to you or the positions are unavailable. If the positions are unavailable, you work on a piece of the getup that's not that piece and go back into it. I remember when, when I went through my first kettlebell training, I think it was uh Brett Jones, um, Steve Cotter, Pavel, Steve Maxwell, and Steve Maxwell had us do our get up in reverse. We started standing, you know, and he said, find your knee, you know, uh, find your hand, uh, shoot your, so we did it in reverse. I've taught a lot of kids how to bench press, doing negatives first. So number one, I honestly think since most people are more comfortable standing and lowering themselves than getting up off the floor, getting into it in reverse is a good one across the bow and don't make them get back up. Just make them go down on each side. I think you'll know what you're facing, but the, the thing I just said about the transitions as opposed to the positions was something that I baked into our, um, our flows and and just uh in our articles just put in uh flows, um is I, I realized that if we could go through a kata, uh a, a, a group of patterns put together, they are not just key positions I need to see you in, but transitioning between these positions tells me so much about how your stability is working. So Most people in this day and age still think we want to look at a bridge or a side plank to check your stability. I don't. Your stability is the effortlessness of a transition from half-kneeling to tall-kneeling or half-kneeling to standing. So I baked that into these flows that we did, and we did a a mobility flow that targets ankles, hips, and T-spine, a stability flow that makes you get up and down off the floor but gives you a a wobble board effect uh, when you need it, And then a symmetry flow for people who are moving pretty good, but they just want to polish that function because they are training hard. So you're not posting a great movement screen every day of the week, especially if you've got delayed onset muscle soreness or, you know, it's a recovery day. So I put three flows in there and I can't emphasize enough. If you can get the positions, then now I'm working on smoothing the transitions And that smooth transition is a better forecast of your motor control than any single test I could give you. Um, We love the motor control screens. We love the YBT. But I'm telling you, as your transitions get better, both those scales go, good job, good job, good job. Your side plank gets better, not necessarily good job. So once again, side plank doesn't transfer to function as well as a sun salutation or a Turkish getup. And incidentally, a sun salutation is really an exploration and a lot of anterior chain, and a Turkish getup with or without weight is a lot of exploration in posterior chain. And so sometimes I ask people, uh, "Here's a sun salutation, here's a Turkish getup. Which which are you more afraid of? You know, hitting every position in? And it's really easy to find out where they'd be on the movement screen just by looking at those images. So.
0: Well, as as we start to wind down, there's, there's, I'm going to uh, shift gears again, and and one of the things that that I really appreciate about our our relationship, friendship, Gray, is our little book club that we have, and and one of the things that I've loved you your your ability to do is take uh information from outside sources non-related to fitness or rehab and take it and apply it to our worlds whether it's how we constantly reference you know atul gawande and the checklist manifesto in the course or like what we've talked about like chip heath and and upstream of being able to really what the movement screen is right looking upstream at, at the bigger issues before we go dialing down deep into here so i'm curious what's what's the latest on the reading list that that we can recommend that that's that's carrying over to what you're doing
1: Oh, wow. All right. Uh, Every year I revisit the four agreements. I just do it because it's spiritual weightlifting for me and get my ego out of out of my own way. Um, I think that uh, I missed one of you know how uh, who's the guy that did uh, like killing Lincoln, killing Kennedy, killing Jesus, killing. uh, Who is that guy? Mm, I haven't haven't gotten
0: Uh, to that series. Oh, you haven't done those series yet? No. It's like no. Uh,
1: he did Killing Patton. Um, uh, anyway, I, I realized I missed one of his books, but they're they're all just good historical perspectives, snippets in history that we, we know the events in history a lot of times, but we don't know how they connect or the transitions, as we were just speaking about. I love that kind of stuff. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of another – new and as soon as as soon as we get off this uh i'll uh i'll probably think of a few more you just you you popped me one the other day didn't
0: you okay so uh, the, 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 uh, the, the last two that one? the the last two that i've really that you know taken a lot away from it, where it applies for what we do is is uh, you know perry i know you love simon sinek the infinite game um and talking it. about it, talking about how like we, it kind of goes to the system like we want to make the quick fix of hey I got that guy to touch his toes on stage and I got the big round of applause but if you can't do it tomorrow I, I didn't really do anything right and looking at the infinite game and then the other one is is uh, Steve Magnus do hard things. Um, talking about the what real mental toughness is and, uh, and and how that applies to coaching and different coaching models. And, you know, it's really interesting stories talking about Bear Bryant and, the, and the, the Junction Boys and this glorification of, you know, making you run to your puke in 120 degree heat. But what they leave out the part is that, that team went one and nine. Um, and so um, learning the truth of mental toughness, and that's something I deal with every day. When I'm in a high school, you know, this morning, and, and it's 95 degrees here, and I have to pull the reins back on the coaches and say, look, another gasser is not going to help you on Friday night win a game, right? But teaching right. these kids how to breathe and manage themselves um, will, right? Teaching them, how, you know, get them to be able to move and hinge their hips better will. And so, um, you know, I've always kind of appreciated that that ability to take these outside resources and, and funnel it and utilize it, leverage it in our industry.
1: No, you, you, you make a good point. And you made me think of the book range that, that comes right out in the very beginning and throws the tiger Woods uh, woods example against the Federer example, multiple sports, late bloomer, one sport, early bloomer, uh, sort of, uh, overbearing father figure that already had your future planned out and a couple of parents that say, yeah, just, you know, go get good at something and we'll support you in that. And then you look at, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean Tiger's path was wrong. Tiger's done a lot of good things. Tiger's had a few mishaps. has done a lot of good things too. But, but I honestly think that, you know, we're in a place right now where if a parent has resources, they think they can buy some athleticism, athleticism for their kid. And if somebody thinks they can get the right trainer and the right chef, they can buy some leanness for themselves. And it all boils down to those atomic habits. If the atomic habits don't hold uh, Adam Grant, uh, you, you don't have that either. And the one book that I went back and did again um, was the book that I put in the foreword of the business of movement, which was uh, Moneyball, because it blew my brain that that, you know, is historically – significant is everything we do in baseball all of a sudden when you come back at it and realize baseball's been in a silo um on base percentage means way more than batting average but right up until you know that was busted out you still had a lot of scouts looking for a a profile of a player instead of just looking at the numbers and 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 putting it all together so moneyball literally was exactly what I was feeling like in the early days of the movement screen where I'm like I think we can actually see something they can't see. They're not asking to see it, they don't want to see it and when we show it to them they're going to call bullshit on us.
2: But I still think we're going to win.
0: <laughs> you know. So Mr. Perry, any closing thoughts or questions before we wrap things up?
2: No, I'm actually just looking at my notes and, and I think we could probably do this forever if, if, uh, if we could keep Gray on the, uh, on the call. but no, you know, I think, I think more importantly too, is, is one of the, the biggest things that I've learned is, uh, you know from Gray is is stepping back and seeing the big picture and taking more of that philosophical approach to things because so many people are so concerned and enamored with the cool exercises, right? I mean, just look at look at social media, right? all the cool, like funky new things out there getting the likes, but you know, you see someone doing a really good deadlift with a, even just a a somewhat appreciable weight. No one gives a damn, but you see someone doing, you know, the, the body blade with one hand single leg deadlift with, you know, 47 mini bands attached to this and that, and people like, that's awesome. And uh, you know, I think if there's really one thing that I could, I think almost everybody in the, in the world of fitness can really agree on is is the, the philosophical approach to, to what you have done at, with FMS is, you know, the idea of pr- protect, correct, and develop, and, and, and simply just following that idea of making better decisions first and foremost, um, you know, changing what you can within your professional skill set, within your scope of practice and then just train, man. And, and, and that's the stuff that I think people, people miss is, you know, it, we want you to train. We just don't want you to do dumb shit along the way. And that's really what it's all about. No, no. And, and,
1: and by the way, I get what you're saying. I, I realized a long time ago that uh, likes on the internet didn't make my wife like me any better. I couldn't spend them to buy new paddle boards. And so I just, they, they, you can't get too caught up in that. I like the fact that the, the book is showing well on Amazon right now. But what I, I literally want people in our, in our field, in, in any movement discipline whatsoever, is it's real easy not to practice what you preach. It's real easy not to do what you believe other people should do. And uh, a few times in my career um, I have felt less than authentic because I knew something in my own personal lifestyle um, where I would tell somebody to pull back and then I would push hard doing the exact same thing I was trying to protect them from. And, uh, when, when in the old days before COVID, when we used to teach on the road together, um, we all used to fix each other, right? Greg Rose's shoulder is out. bernard has got a headache. Uh, Kyle's low back is flared up. Phil Plisky never has any problems, but uh, you know, I I don't know why that is. I think he's, he's part side work, I believe. Yeah, he is. He is. Yeah, he just needs a new chip every <laughs> now and then. But no, we we all we all offer each other self help and self care, but a lot of times you forget. You just, you just forget to apply it to yourself. So the first thing that I had the pleasure to do in uh, section one and section two of that book before we started telling your stories is I got to ask the reader who's running a leg of a movement business. I don't care whether it's a hospital-based PT clinic, a chiropractic clinic, sports medicine, NFL strength coach, PE. I don't care what it is. You're getting ready to run up against some principles. If you're not living them, they'll smell that shit on you. They just will. And, and the, the secret to public speaking is, number one, just get your reps in. But number two, just don't talk about shit you're not doing, personally. Just don't. Because it, it just doesn't come across nearly as good. But when you've had your growing pains... And, and you've had that personal experience and if you've looked at your reflection in that mirror and it didn't look so good so you decided to change something it's hard to do it, it's really you know hard to do so um, that's that's the first thing is is get the shit straight in your own house and then tell your neighbors how to live
2: advice love right it. there
0: I love it okay, yeah, that's a perfect perfect way to wrap things up so again it's the business of movement. Uh, is, is the latest thing out. And I'm honored, as, as I know you are, Mike, to be a, a, just a small part of that, but more importantly, honored to have you as a mentor and a friend. Gray, this has been absolutely incredible. And and thank you. couldn't thank you enough. Couldn't thank you enough. Oh,
1: thank you, guys. And one more thing. Uh, it's probably by the time this goes out, it'll already be on audiobook. And the good news is, I only read the beginning and the end and a lady with a really cool voice reads the whole other thing so if you like putting in your earbuds and taking a bike ride or doing whatever you do um you can get the book that way too so
2: awesome awesome well hey gray thank you so much hey where are you uh you doing any perform betters coming up here are you doing in providence i'm gonna do providence all right so you know we'll definitely get to see in providence and for those of you if you uh if you are headed to perform better uh down in providence this summer i highly recommend you check out gray and uh Uh, He may even have sleeves. Who knows? You never know. (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) No, I highly doubt it. I highly doubt it. All
0: right. Well, thank you. This has, again, been the Principles Performance Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.